Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. In her new book, The Jew Named Jesus, Rebecca Simon Peter says that Jesus was born a Jew, raised a Jew, lived a Jew, died a Jew, and resurrected a Jew. He was no backsliding Jew, but an observant Jew. He honored and observed the Sabbath and the Jewish holidays, but most of all, he honored and observed the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament. How could he do anything but love his own people? Simon Peter, an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, was born and raised a Jew herself, first Reform and later Orthodox. She challenges Christians to rethink Jesus' identity as a Jew, and in the process, to consider ways traditional Christian theology has contributed to anti-Semitism. Rebecca, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Kara. I'm delighted to be here. Now, your book begins with the question, what's a nice Jewish girl like me doing in a place like this? So why don't we begin there? Could you p just tell us a little about your own journey? Okay, thank you, I will. Um, you know, my own parents set the stage for my spiritual journey. Uh, my mom's Jewish, my dad's Catholic, and my mom's parents had what was called an intermarriage way back then. She had uh, a Reformed Jewish mother and an Orthodox Jewish father. So the two of them getting together set the stage for my mom having an openness. And when she married my dad, who was Catholic, um, they uh, established a family that in some ways was interfaith. So my mom was actually going to convert to Catholicism to raise us kids Jewish, but in the end, uh, my dad already wasn't going to church, and so he supported all of us kids in being raised Jewish. And I went to religious school um, in Hebrew school. I had my bat mitzvah at age 13, and I was confirmed with my confirmation class at 16. We went on a trip to Israel. It was a very um, classical, reformed Jewish uh, upbringing. And uh, we went to the temple on Friday nights, and uh, it was something that I loved very much. I ended up, like a lot of kids who are raised in a particular religious tradition, straying from the faith, oh, about the age of 16. And um, I was sort of off into the world and um, doing what teenagers do. But when I went to college, I ended up diving back into Judaism, and I actually surfaced in a different tradition than I had begun in. Instead of being in the Reformed tradition, I surfaced in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, and uh, six years later, I had an experience with Jesus, so I went through quite a few big spiritual changes in a short period of time, and out of all of that, wound up in seminary um, to pursue um, what what I was learning, and, and it really all centered around this, this vision experience that I had with Jesus when I was about 28 years old. Now, now Rebecca, before you get to the vision, um, I just love the phrase, you strayed as a teen. I think that happens pretty often. 
Um, but think, could, could you just share a little bit about the difference, though, in terms of, of the life or the, the daily life between being a Reformed Jew and then the Orthodox life that you had gotten into? Yeah, it's, it's quite a bit different. If you imagine a long spectrum with uh, Reformed Judaism, say, on the left end and Orthodox Judaism on the right end of the religious spectrum, and you hold your hands far apart, that's about how far apart the two are. There's a lot of structure. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of structure in the Orthodox Jewish community. Daily life is structured by three times a set times of prayer. And then the week itself is structured with um, the six regular days and then the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, which, of course, Reformed Jews recognize as well. But the way the Sabbath is observed is quite a bit different um, from sunset or actually before sunset on Friday night until three stars appear in the sky at night on Saturday night that 25 hours is set aside as the Sabbath, a very sacred time in the Orthodox tradition in which, unlike the Reform, uh, there's no driving, handling of money, uh, no things that were classically interpreted as work. And so it's really a time that's set aside, a very special and sacred time. And in addition, most, uh, most Reformed Jews do not keep the kosher laws. But the Orthodox Jewish community does, and so there's a structure around food and eating. So all of this structure is designed to really attune one to um, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of God, one's own special place in the world, and um, living very intentionally. Mm. Thank you for that. Yes, I got that image of sacred time and space uh, put, put aside. Um, so you got into a deeper experience of Judaism, it sounds like, in your, in your early 20s. Now, what led you then to what happened next? You said you had a vision when you were 28. Would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, it was actually a vision, I should tell you, when I was about 22 or 24 that prompted me into the Orthodox Jewish community. I had an experience with God. I was in Israel, and I felt like God literally knocked me upside of the head. Okay. I woke up sleep and realized, I am living my life all wrong. And believe me, there was plenty wrong with the way I was living. Uh, <laughs> that prompted uh, me into, uh, you know, really delving into my Jewish tradition and, and embracing orthodoxy. Um, so, so you're, so you're having visions here. You're getting some direct information here. I know. And, you know, and then it's like really hard to ignore or argue with. You know, it's like I didn't just make this up. So... Um, yeah, so for six years, you know, more or less, I was involved in this deeply Jewish way of life, and then I had this uh, vision, literally, of Jesus, and it was really surprising. It was um, right on or around my 28th birthday, and um, interestingly enough, I was in a, in a sort of a, a meditative kind of state, and... I had this vision of Jesus, and he didn't look like any of the pictures I'd ever seen before. You know, he didn't have long, light brown hair, and he didn't have blue eyes, and um, he didn't have white skin either. He had this thick, curly, dark beard, thick, wavy brown hair, olive skin, dark eyes. I mean, clearly Jewish. There was just no mistaking. Uh, Very handsome, too, I should add. And he didn't actually open his mouth to speak to me, but in the way of visions, he just communicated so fully. And I felt like what he was saying to me is, I understand you. 
I understand. You understand where you're coming from. I understand, you know, what you're up against. I understand where you've been. I understand why you made the decisions you made. Like, there's a big understanding of me. And then acceptance. Like, I accept you. I accept you. And there were no, there were no ifs, ands, or buts. Like, I'll accept you if. Um, I'll accept you when. There wasn't any of that. Just, I understand you. I accept you. And finally, I love you. And it was a kind of love that was rare, unconditional love. All of this communicated just by his presence to me. And unlike some of my friends, whom I later found out had been waiting, praying for a vision like this, I was kind of put off by it. You know, I didn't really know what to make of it. I wasn't sure what to do with it. As far as I knew, Jesus and I didn't have any sort of relationship, and that was just fine. But, you know, here he is talking to me like we have this relationship, and it was stunning. It was stunning to me, Um, and it stayed with me all these years. A very, very powerful experience. Mm, I can appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that uh, with our listeners and and, and beyond. I, you know, I once had a, a vision of Jesus who looked at me more as if to say, are you done now? <laughs> get on, let's get on with it. <laughs> so I, I, I really appreciate your journey. I can relate to it some because my parents were also, uh, my mom was Roman Catholic and my father was Jewish. Um, oh. And so they... You know, I'm sure listeners have have heard me say this, and they're rolling their eyes, saying, "Oi, this story again." But uh, <laughs> it, uh, you know, they they had decided not to raise me with any um, mm. religion, so I grew up in a secular house, and they decided I would just choose for myself one day when I was an adult, like when I was 18. And I little did they know that uh, you know faith and theology and you know would just become my life. I guess it was kind of a reverse psychology. <laughs> approach uh there but i i appreciate what you're what you're sharing and so now you have this vision and very wisely did not know what to do with it yet which is good you know to reflect on these things and now did this lead you then toward christianity well um the first thing i did was decide i'm not telling anybody about this (laughs) and that lasted i think at least a full hour and then I went off to my friend, uh, who, like you, had a Jewish dad and a Protestant mom, a little bit different. And I told her about what happened. And she was in seminary at the time. I told her about this, and she said, well, you know, Jesus was Jewish. And I was like, yeah, 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 everybody knows Jesus was Jewish. She said, well, did you know the disciples were Jewish? I said, disciples? What's a disciple? She said, oh, well, you haven't read the New Testament. And I said, no, it's not my book. (laughs) So she says, well, I'm going to get you one. And I thought, well, I'm not reading it. And, you know, I really didn't. But I was intrigued by the fact that... (laughs) I'm not reading it? (laughs) Yeah, reading it. I was intrigued Uh, by the fact that she was in seminary and she was getting to study Hebrew. Now, I studied Hebrew when I was getting ready for my bat mitzvah. I thought that's just something Jewish kids did. And once you've had your bat mitzvah, it's over. It's done. Like, you don't go back to that. But here she is, like, in the middle of the day, you know, studying Hebrew. And I thought, oh, I want some more of that. Um, And she was studying Bible. She was studying Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrew, Greek. I thought, now, that's 
sounds really interesting. So right. I, I so that thought, that was a that was a surprise to you that Christian ministers or theologians would be studying Hebrew and and Greek and some Aramaic even. Well, who knew? Who knew? (laughs) The Greek part, but the Hebrew? No, I had no idea. I I had no idea. So that's where the title of uh, that first chapter in my book comes from, What's a Nice Jewish Girl Like Me Doing in a Place Like This? Because when I enrolled in ILF and I went to school, I found myself thinking that, you know, the first day as I'm pushing open the big doors of the ILF School of Theology, what is a nice Jewish girl like me doing in a place like this? And what was interesting is that that's where I first read the New Testament was when I was in seminary. And as I read that, a new question began to form in my mind, which is, what's a nice Jewish boy like Jesus doing in a book like this? It, uh, it didn't make any sense to me because I really hadn't realized how much, how Jewish Jesus really was and also how Jewish in some ways, the New Testament is. I mean, how much it refers to Jews and Jewish life and Jewish practice. I had no idea all that was in there. Um, How it comes to be interpreted, I also might have had some idea about that, and that's really where the book comes out of is challenging, in some ways, the interpretation um, of the New Testament. So that's a long answer, but I don't even remember where we started. <laughs> well, it's a it's a it's a great answer. Um, I appreciate I appreciate that. So yes, yeah, so it's a sort of an eye opener, you know, that Christians are are worshiping a, a Jewish man. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I I think my original question then was that this did this eventually bring you to the Christian faith? Yeah, eventually it did. When I went to seminary, I thought, all right, Jesus apparently had Jewish disciples. I'm a Jewish disciple, I'm not becoming a Christian. No, no thought whatsoever of becoming a minister. In fact, I remember thinking, I don't know how I'm going to pay the student loans off for this Master's of Divinity because I'm never going to use the degree. So, but once I got there, oh boy, once I got there um, and I delved into the studies, God um, began to delve into me some more, and I think it was my second year there in seminary that I got what ministers call the call, Uh, to ministry, and I understood implicitly that God was calling me to to minister to the Christian half of the family, Um, and uh, I thought, oh boy, if I'm called to be a minister, I, I better get on it, because I wasn't going to church, I wasn't baptized, I wasn't any of that, because I, I, I just didn't see myself involved in Christianity prior to that, so then I, I went off and I, I, you know, sort of started going to church and started trying to figure out um, denominations. I didn't know anything about denominations. And, um, hmm. in fact, when I was growing up, you know, I saw, I saw churches on every street corner and I always thought, now, see, those Christians, they really have it together. They've oh. got a church <laughs> on every street corner. <laughs> and I didn't know anything mm. about the uh, exegesis of church signs and that they all actually meant something and right. something different. So right. that was interesting, too, because I always thought now the Jews were so divided. You know, you got Reform, you got Orthodox, you got Conservative and Reconstructionism, but those Christians, boy, they are really united. Mm. So That's interesting, interesting, yes. Yes, I think in the United States there are more than 2,500, you know, different Christian churches, in fact. But that's another another subject. Um, yeah. I, I appreciate your use of the word family 
because that's so much of what we do here uh, in the in this program and in our institute, which is when we talk to each other and enough to you know to really listen in the original meaning of the word obey or obedience, which is to listen to someone. Uh, we find all this commonality and we find how the threads connect and we really are one family. And so that's, that's very uh, moving. But I, I have to ask though, did this have an effect on, on your relationship with your family of origin? Was this a kind of say what? <laughs> yeah. I remember when I called my dad and told him about the Jesus experience, he was kind of floored uh, because he had left the church um, he had his own dissatisfactions with the Roman Catholic Church, um, and I think by the time he and my mom were married, he was pretty well out of it. So it kind of floored him. Um, and uh, there were some other dynamics at play in my family of origin, and so we did not have uh, contact or close contact for many, many years. But now, as things have come full circle, I actually have a very close relationship with my family. And it's interesting because my dad, who was at first quite floored, is now the one sending me articles about uh, this Jewish New Testament scholar and that Muslim uh, New Testament scholar. And so we're having some very vigorous conversations um, about about uh, Jesus the Jew. And uh, my mom, of course, is uh, completely open-minded and open-hearted, mm. as is my dad uh, towards me and, and all of my family. So I'm very grateful for that. Oh, I, I appreciate that, um, your candor there. Um, I, I also have a, a book out right now called Inspired Relationships, which mm. explores the real male and female f- relationships between saints in the Catholic Church. And uh, one couple, as it were, in quotes, <laughs> is um, Francis and Claire of Assisi. And, yeah. uh, and this Friday is, of course, it's the celebration of uh, St. Francis in the Catholic Church. But those two you know, who launched the Franciscan orders had very mm-hmm. different relationships with their parents after this. Uh, for Francis, it was sort of an end, unfortunately, uh, to his relationship, uh, you know, with, with his parents. They couldn't follow uh, where he was going. And, but with St. Clair, um, eventually she had sisters and her mom join her in community. Um, but either way, as you know, I like to point out, you know, supported or not supported, they still shed their light. And Amazing. I, yeah, I'm, and I'm I'm just glad to hear of of the you know the development there with your with your family uh, heading in that direction. I am too. It's a delightful relationship, and I'm so pleased. So, so with all the 2,500 denominations of churches uh, in the U.S., what, how, how did you come to find a home in the Methodist Church? Was it a, there was a particular resonance there in this community? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So like I said, I thought all churches were the same, and then I wound up in the seminary. I didn't really do any seminary shopping. My friend was there. I went there. And um, then when I got this call to ministry, I sort of woke up to the fact that I was in a United Methodist Seminary. And um, so I began to really think about that and look around. And I didn't, I, I'm not a big detail-oriented person, I'll have to tell you the truth about that. So I didn't want to like, go through some exhaustive you know, survey of 2,500 denominations. But I found that I really liked where I was at. The United Methodist tradition has a really lovely um, dynamic in it called the quadrilateral. And if you remember... Uh, geometry at all. It's a four-sided object. But this quadrilateral quadrilateral is almost like four pillars. 
scripture, experience, tradition, and reason that a person uses to interpret their faith and to live the life of faith. And I really like that. Um, I felt like that would allow me to bring all of who I was to this faith journey and to this matter of ministry. Um, not only scripture, Old and New Testaments, but the experience, my experiences, uh, my traditions, as well as the traditions of the church, and my reasoning, you know, my brain, my thinking ability. Methodists like to say that you don't have to park your brain at the door, that reason is a God-given gift, and so we use that as well. And so after looking around a little bit, I chose, and, and plus, honestly, they had a guaranteed appointment system for ministers, and I thought, that's a pretty good deal here, because what, you know, what do I know about this whole um, system? So um, I liked that, but as, I especially liked the quadrilateral. That made a lot of sense to me. And I'd been studying um, United Met- with United Methodists, and I liked who I was meeting. Mm. Thank you so much, uh, Rebecca. Now, now let's let's start to head toward your book now. Okay, so here okay. you are. <laughs> okay, what led you then to write this book, uh, The Jew Named Jesus? Did you see something lacking? I mean, you share some of your own understanding. How did you yeah. see that manifesting elsewhere as well? Yeah, well, so there I am in the church, and almost from the beginning of my time in the church, I began to sort of compare notes in my head, what I knew about Judaism, how it was seeming to be preached, um, what I knew about the scriptures, how they and how the Old Testament was being interpreted and preached, and so I began to sort of catalog these gaps between what I knew, what I grew up with, and what I was experiencing in the church. And after I was in local church ministry for about eleven and a half, twelve years, I branched out to doing what I do now, which is writing books, teaching. Um, leading workshops, coaching, consulting, things like that. Um, and one of the things that I've had great success with is leading workshops called Reading the Bible with Jewish Eyes. And I've gone around to many, many churches and taught what I have seen in the scriptures. And I've been met with such uh, a welcoming response. And right away I was asked, where's your book? <laughs> it only took me seven years um, to write the book, or 23 really, um, but I wrote the book because I wanted to capture for people the kinds of things that I'd been seeing in those gaps. And also, I think the biggest thing is at the heart of much Christian preaching and teaching, very subtle, but at the heart of it is sort of this us versus them mentality. And this may be overstated a bit, but maybe just a bit. And that us versus them mentality is that there's a good Christian Jesus at the heart of the gospel stories who stood against the bad, faithless Jews, uh, variously known as Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, the lawyers, or just in quotes, the Jews. And it sets up this triangle that in order to stand with Jesus, You've got to stand against somebody else. And first off, I think that it's a false dichotomy, that us versus them, the good Christian Jesus against the bad, faithless Jews. And then I think it sets up an eternally replicating, very harmful dichotomy and triangulation with all sorts of people. Okay, well, if okay, maybe we're okay with Jews. What about women? What about gays? What about blacks? What about immigrants? What about uh, Arabs? What about 
foreigners? What about Republicans? What about Democrats? You know, that there's always somebody that we're going to stand against in order to stand with Jesus. And I wanted to explore and then dismantle that false dichotomy. And Hmm. that's at the heart of the book. And out of that, I have many suggestions for the church and even for the synagogue. Well, thank you for that. And I'm, I'm going to get into some of those suggestions in a, in a little bit. But it's fascinating because Jesus did face off with, you know, the Pharisees and the hypocrites and all that. But he did so completely as a Jew mm-hmm. to the Jews. And, in, and, and his Jewishness was so important in terms of fulfilling scripture. Uh, Mary being a Jewish woman is, is completely critical in this. So you're raising a very interesting point here. <laughs> um, in, in, in terms of in terms of interpretation of of this. So ah. um, mm-hmm. let me see. Let's uh yes, I I want to go a little bit uh further here, but the us versus them um is uh is very interesting. Now, you said it's it, it's not just subtle. <laughs> Um, how do you think it, it manifests, though? Do you think it manifests in those churches on every corner with Christians in terms of the different denominations sort of not speaking to each other? Yes, 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 yes. I do think that that's part of that. Not always, of course. Sometimes there are amicable partings and certainly amicable relations in the community. But I do think at the heart of that is, hey, we're getting this right. You got it wrong, and we're getting it right. Um, the, you know, the Jews got it wrong. Christians are getting it right. Now this version of Christians have it right, and you have it wrong. And I do think that's an expression of that. And you know, I think about how Jesus came to me and what he said to me. And I don't think he said those things to me, I, I understand you, I accept you, I love you, because there is anything special about me. I think that's his message, is understanding, acceptance, and love. And I wonder what would happen if we extend, first off, if we receive that without condition, and then if we extend that to others, um, even others within the Christian household of faith, what kind of difference would that make instead of trying to get everything so exactly, perfectly right, I'm right, you're wrong? Yes, thank you so much for that. You know, along the way, some of the mystics in the church, the uh, Teresas of Avila and the Julians of Norwich, basically that is the message they keep conveying, um, mm-hmm. sort of right alongside the timeline of the institutional churches. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is a timeless message. It may be the only message um, mm-hmm. of love and acceptance. And you just mentioned there, you know, even just accepting that ourselves as we are. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's, I, that's a big I challenge for, <laughs> for some. May I go back for a minute to what you said about the Pharisees? and uh, Sure. Jesus, go right ahead. Yeah, so um, this is one of those stereotypes, that Jesus stood against all the Pharisees, and all the Pharisees were hypocrites. But it's not true. There were actually many Pharisees that followed Jesus. Well, and there were Pharisees who invited him over to dinner, even when he scolded them, even when he rebuked them, they invited him over for dinner. There were Pharisees that warned Jesus about Herod being after him. He had friends among the Pharisees. And not only that, not only were were Pharisees followers of Jesus, some Pharisees, but Jesus was also a follower of the Pharisees. And this is something that isn't widely understood Um, The Pharisees are often criticized for being, quote, legalistic. 
And what their intent was, was to keep sacred the Torah and keep sacred the commandments of God. And so they did what's called building a fence around the commandments. In order not to violate the commandment, let's just set the, the line back a little bit farther just to make sure we keep that commandment holy. So Jesus had a way of doing this as well. You, you'll recall some of the scriptures where he says, you know, you have heard it said, um, thou shalt not murder, but I say unto you, thou shalt not be angry. Um, he had a way of setting a fence around the law too to, to uh, make it more sacred and to, to bring out the finer points of the law. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. It was a, it was a common dynamic at the time. And so instead of just seeing Jesus as standing against the Pharisees and all the Pharisees as hypocrites, this book takes you into a more nuanced journey around who Pharisees were and what they stood for, what Jesus stood for. And in many ways, you know, what we stand for, um, wanting that, that uh, spiritual emphasis on things. In fact, I talk about this in the book, but I have a fence around the law. I have a fence around one of my sins. I mean, one of my sins is eating sugar and like a glutton and not stopping once I start. And I realize <laughs> that uh, there's a way for me to put sort of a fence around this thing so I don't wander into uh, sinful territory for me, sinful in the sense that it just separates me from God. I'm off in my own world, I'm off in my own head, and I'm on a self-destructive bent when I'm in that. And I, I traced it back over time, and it all starts with green tea. If I stay away from green tea, I don't want decaf coffee. If I don't want decaf coffee, then I never end up wanting regular coffee. If I don't want regular <laughs> coffee, then I sugar and I don't, I don't eat chocolate, and if I don't eat chocolate, then I don't eat sugar. And I've tested this over the years, and one invariably leads, it's like domino effect, all the way down the line. So, you know, it's that sort of understanding what's the first step that gets you into trouble. Oh, wow. And that's what that was about for the Pharisees. That's what that was about for Jesus. Um, and I think it's something that when we understand it that way, we get out from behind the rhetoric it makes a heck of a lot of sense. Mm. It's very wise spiritual wisdom. This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation with Rebecca Simon Peter, author of the book The Jew Named Jesus. Stay with us. Strengthen them, O oh Lord, and keep them from 
Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with Rebecca Simon-Peter, author of the book, The Jew Named Jesus, and about Jewish-Christian relations. Now, Rebecca, I wanted to talk to you about uh, your book in more detail in this part of the show, and also about the four explanations you mention around Jesus' death. Um, can you share a little bit of that? I've often referred to the like the four Gospels, as, and and I mean this not in a in a too terribly irreverent way, but it's almost like four witnesses of a car accident, and yeah. and and how they each have their own viewpoints and the own the, and the details they notice based on their own priorities. Yeah, that's exactly right. Four witnesses is a great way to say that, and those four explanations, unfortunately. Uh, do not align up perfectly with these four Gospels, but you are pointing to an important facet when it comes to interpretation of the Bible, and that is diversity. There's a diverse set of witnesses to the life of Jesus. There's a diverse set of explanations about his life and about his death. And I think that diversity holds some very interesting ideas for us. So um, I liken this whole idea of who killed Jesus to Facebook's ways of letting you indicate what your love life status is. And uh, I don't know. I don't look this <laughs> wow. But okay, that's, used to that's be there were about 10 ways to indicate uh, options for your relationship. You know, you could say that you're single or in a relationship, engaged, married, divorced, open relationship, widowed, separated, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was a last one that you could check. It's complicated. And uh, it's complicated is actually a very fitting uh, title for this section of the book, talking about who killed Jesus. And honestly, the reason I wanted to write about this is because many Christians say, yeah, 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 we get Jesus was Jewish, but the Jews killed Jesus. And that be- that stays this point of contention and pain. Um, it's been very painful for Jews because that contention has often had violence at the other end of those words uh, over the centuries. But it's painful for Christians, too, and I wanted to explore that some more. So what I found is, as I look deeply at the Bible, there are at least four major 
explanations for why Jesus died, and there are some minor ones as well. But the first major explanation is that Jesus gave himself up for us, knowingly and willingly. He just gave himself up. Nobody took his life. He gave it. And the second explanation is that his death was in accordance with God's will. So it was God's will that Jesus died. Again, it's not about blame. It's just this was God's will. Jesus had to die. The third major explanation is that he was crucified by Rome, and there's a great deal of detail about that in all four Gospels. And then the fourth was ultimately it was the Jews who wanted him dead. And what I find interesting is that even with all four of those explanations, it usually, for many Christians, comes down to, yeah, but they killed Jesus. They killed Jesus. Um, So I write about why are there so many explanations and what are these explanations, where do they come from? So, you know, for for those who have read the the book, the New Testament, or have heard the story, um, it seems inevitable that Jesus would die, that he had to die, and that he would die, and he was going to rise from the dead. But at the time, it was completely unexpected. It was completely unexpected uh, for all people that Jesus was going to die. Now, Jesus mentions it, but whenever he mentions it in real time, you know, put yourself back in the story, the disciples are upset, they're angry, they're confused. And, you know, Peter even goes so far as to rebuke Jesus. God forbid it! This must never happen, you know, he says to him. And from this angle, uh, there's a a way of preaching that often um, pokes fun at the disciples. And so often preachers um, will poke fun at the disciples saying, oh, they just didn't get it. But the truth is nobody got it. It was very unexpected, especially with Jesus. um, If he was in the role of Messiah, that would have been very unexpected uh, for a messianic figure to have died, uh, because a messianic, especially to be killed, a messianic figure was would be one blessed by God and set aside for very special tasks like leadership in this life. And so um, the, it's thought that the, the uh, Gospels were actually written to answer the question, why did Jesus die? And thus, as you mentioned, these four different testimonies, these four different witnesses, these four different explanations. And so we've got all these different reasonings sort of woven together to address that question, why did Jesus die? But I think one of the really interesting things to keep in mind is that all of them were written in proximity to or after this major, major political upheaval, and that was the the series of Jewish Roman wars in which the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was taken, and the Jewish way of life as had been known by Jesus and others uh, after that, after him, a couple of decades after him, that way of life was gone forever, gone forever. If Jesus lived and died around 29 uh, AD or BCE, according to the Jewish estimation, 29, and the, the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem happened somewhere between 66 and 73. And the Gospels were written, you know, anywhere from 65 to 100. All those Gospels were written in light of the destruction of Jerusalem. So that really colored what they had to say. And it really um, colored the, the, the life of Jesus, too, because the temple was still standing when he was alive, but it was no longer standing or was just being destroyed as the Gospels were being written. So that really, there was a lot of upheaval with that. And that shaped not only history, but it shaped the community of Jews that followed Jesus.
mm. and um, the way they thought about things. Well, so, it's uh, it's interesting because the in terms of the four points of view there, and you can you know there's a different tone through the gospels, these four gospels on in these accounts. Um, you know, the number two there, God's will. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that that's the one pertaining to God in, exclusively. <laughs> um, I tend to lean towards that, that it was his mission. This was a, this is what God's plan was to, that this, he needed to go through this and resurrect. And this is, that's what I'm believing. But you share something here about this, this image of the Messiah, which is important because yeah. can you know, what, what that image was in the Old Testament and then, you know, what this particular Messiah might have looked like in Jesus's case is two com- like completely different images. Yeah. Could you could you share a little bit about the role that played in this? Well, yeah, the, the, the Messiah was thought to be um, a leader who would lead the people and lead them, you know, now what's thought of as the Messianic Age, or you might think of the Golden Era, in which there would be unity and um, the sovereignty of God would reign, and the people would be politically independent and free, you know, the people Israel, the Jewish people, um, that it would be a time of freedom, you know, liberty, um, and justice for all, you know. I mean, it would be a time of, of people living in peace, everyone unafraid under their own vine and fig tree, as the uh, Hebrew Bible saying goes. And in Jesus' day, there was a lot of messianic fervor, and one of the reasons was there was so much oppression. The people were not free. It was occupied. Um, their country was occupied. There was a, sort of a puppet ruler. Um, there was a great deal of economic um, pressure on people. The taxes were outrageous. A great deal of political pressure, and political then, by extension, also means religious pressure because there was not a separation of church and state. People's lives were, they were intertwined. I mean, it was just, it was life, and it included politics and economics and religion and all of that. It was all woven together. So there was a tremendous amount of pressure, and they just did not have um, a say about their lives. And so this messianic fervor is now is the time. God's going to raise somebody up who's going to have the government rest upon his shoulders. You know, there's a reason that that Isaiah passage that's read uh, around Christmas time and sung in the famous Christmas music uh, fit for Jesus, and, and uh, people hoped fit for Jesus and fit for the people because they really needed that. They really wanted that, you know, that he shall have the government upon his shoulders. So, um, interestingly enough, even Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, um, and Mary, you could say, they they all were yearning for that, and in those early sections in Luke when they were giving thanks to God for the birth of this child um, and the birth of John the Baptist, everything they were saying was messianic in overtone in the way that would have been understood by the people then. Here comes someone who's going to free us in the here and now. This was murder, the fact that Jesus died, the fact that the temple fell, I mean, that, that was tough for people. That was tough for the disciples. Yeah. Uh, according to later remembrances by the by the gospel writers, uh oh, this is not how we thought it was going to go. This is right. not what we had envisioned. This is not what we hoped for. Right. So what right. is it? So thus, you know, these different explanations of why Jesus died and what it was all about. Now you you do a fair amount, as you said, of uh, in, like interfaith workshops or understanding of of this kind of spirituality. 
Um, can you share, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on some of the background then around Jewish-Christian relations, and where do you think it is today? Yeah, well, I want to say we've come a mighty long way. Um, you know, in the very beginning, there were uh, all the Christians were Jews. They had very fluid identities, and there wasn't really a parting of the ways to two separate religions as we think of them now till the fourth century or later. There was a lot of fluidity in the early days, and and um, you know we can trace back through. Um, those early centuries, charges of deicide, you know, kill, Jews killing God, that emerged in the second century, and in the fourth century, uh, there was a series of sermons preached called Against the Jews, Adversos Iudeos, and that later came to uh, capture an attitude known as contempt for the Jews, which really continued on um, through the Holocaust and beyond. Um, in that same century, the 4th century, Emperor Constantine began to enact laws that isolated Jews economically and socially. And, and then through the Middle Ages, Jewish rights were just systematically curtailed by European church councils. And then, you know, we have the Crusades. Thousands of Jews were subject to the decision, either convert or die. And then the expulsions, there were expulsions from every European country beginning in, in the year 1290. And then that all sort of um, led up to Martin Luther and some of his writings. He was a great Protestant reformer known for many, many wonderful things, but also for a few not-so-good things. And one of those was his 16th century advice on how to deal with Jews. And it was horrific. Um, Many of the things that were enacted during the Holocaust uh, were, were taken from Luther's advice almost to the letter. And so clearly we hit the bottom, you know, the very bottom of Jewish-Christian relations during the Holocaust in which six million were lost. And we're probably very familiar with, with those details. But it was Luther um, in the 16th century that, you know, his advice was for burning synagogues and holy books and destroying Jewish homes and forbidding rabbis to teach and stealing their gold and taking away their means of livelihood and subjecting them to harsh labor. That was Martin Luther that wrote all that. And it was to be done, by the way, in honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians. <laughs> so the very different right. sense back then of right. how Luther thought of being Christian. You know, I always joke that he must have been unfamiliar with that song, They Will Know We Are Christians by Our Love. Uh, yes. That was a way altogether. But uh, and then, of course, you know, after um, after the Holocaust, we've seen the rise of the KKK, and now there's neo-Nazis and, and Holocaust deniers, which is the strangest sort of anti-Semitism at, of all. But all this to say that those things are happening now in a much different sort of environment than pre-World War II. Mm. Uh, we really have moved from monologue to dialogue, and by monologue I mean the church proclaiming how Jews are to be seen, much of that quite negative, as, as I just rehearsed with you. Um, but Vatican II in the, in the 1960s was just a beautiful, careful, and conscientious endeavor undertaken by the Pope at the time with uh, Jewish community and others, re-looking at many things, including what is to be the proper relationship between Jews and Christians. And what got started with the Roman Catholic Church has been picked up um, beautifully by Protestant denominations. And so by this point in time, um, 
probably every major Protestant denomination has a letter on the record or some uh, reconciling dialogue that they've been engaged in or involved with that recognizes um, the ongoing covenant of God with the Jews, mm. that recognizes the importance of the land to the Jews, that recognizes uh, that Jesus was Jewish, um, that recognizes um, that God's love continues to this day for Jews as well as for Christians. There's been a tremendous amount of work. In fact, uh, anti-Semitism in the United States is at an all-time low, mm. which is really nice. Um, yeah. And even so, you know, there's still work for us to do, I think, in, in going all the way to embrace the Jewish Jesus. But we have come a very, very long way, and right. that's something that we have a right to, to feel good about. In fact, we've come so far that now um, Jews who, who in the past, you know, you wouldn't even ever utter the J word in a Jewish home. You wouldn't say the J word. Um, he was just... Then Jesus was just synonymous with the suffering of Jews at the hands of the church. Mm. But because of all this great work that's been done, it's really freed up Jews as well to relook at Jesus on their own terms, in their own way, to begin to, to come to terms with who Jesus might be. Who, who was he? Who might he be? What does he mean to the Jewish community? If there is such a thing, you know, what does he... What does he mean back then? What does he mean now? And that's only possible because of the work that uh, Christians and Jews have done in, in, in getting this right about the mm. Jewishness of Jesus and in that engaging in that grand arc of reconciliation and of dialogue. So it's very interesting now. There's just a plethora of Jewish New Testament scholars teaching in Christian seminaries yes. and in colleges and universities, and I find that fascinating and very, very heartening because they're also bringing to light tremendous stuff about the Jewishness of Jesus, which right. is helpful for Christians and Jews alike. And it's and it's very appropriate. I mean, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Now, you bring up um, Martin Luther, and it's interesting to me— um, yeah, we call him, you know, the Protestant reformer, but you know, he was actually a Roman Catholic Augustinian monk, and yeah. and he was uh, doing, you know, facing off against his own um, tradition, as it were, yeah. when he when he posted the theses on the on the door at Wittenberg, and I'm not so sure that he intended to create a whole different, you know, experience of of Christianity as what came out of that, and I wanted to ask you if similarly. Would you think that Jesus then was really just trying to make help Jews become, you know, better yeah. Jews, <laughs> and didn't yeah, ne didn't yeah, necessarily yeah, exactly. didn't necessarily I, found yeah, this whole like, other tradition? Yeah, Luther was never a Lutheran. John Wesley, who's credited with being the founder of the Methodist Church, was never a Methodist. He was an Anglican. Jesus was never a Christian. He was always a Jew. And the way I talk about it is that the religion of Jesus is Judaism. The religion about Jesus is Christianity. But Jesus was a Jew speaking to Jews, um, standing for Jews in a good prophetic fashion, you know, the way prophets stand uh, both for and against the people at the same time. Jesus was a Jew through and through. He clothed himself in the commandments. He lived in the in the fashion of an itinerant rabbi common to his day. He had disciples like other 
um, rabbis of his day, and he taught he taught the Hebrew Bible. There was no other Bible. There was no New Testament. He taught the Hebrew Bible. He interpreted uh, in many ways according to the um, uh, the fashion of his day. Um, the the Talmud and the the Mishnah come out of this time, and the teachings of the other rabbis captured in that. And there's much similarity and overlap between how Jesus taught and what they had to say, even the Golden Rule. So yes, I think your your point is so well taken care of that Jesus was a Jew trying to get Jews to be better Jews. It was it was all about that and all about this this kingdom of God, you know, that was available to people, also a, a Jewish concept. Now, one of the places of great connection to me is in something like the sacrament of communion, um, yeah. of the the bread and the wine, um, which is coming basically from a Passover celebration. Uh, how can our Christian faith deepen and grow as we consider ways to respect Jesus's identity as a faithful Jew? Is this one of the places in terms of such a celebration uh, where we can contemplate on this? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful idea. I think that's a, a lovely idea. There are so many things already in the Christian tradition that are traced directly back to Jewish practice and to Jewish antecedents. Um, so recognizing that, I think, is the first step. Um, I think the second step is a carefulness in our preaching and our praying and our singing and our teaching to let go of the stereotypes of Jesus as the good Christian Jesus standing against the bad, faithless Jews, um, and develop a much more nuanced understanding of the Jewish context in which Jesus lived and worshipped and worked. And I think the final thing that I I think would really help is to see Jesus not as the anti-Jew, you know, the anti-Jew that, uh, you know, he, he... stood with women, you know, he ate with sinners, he let little children come to him. We emphasize that as if other Jews didn't, as if um, Jesus was uh, just the exception in all of those things, and that, you know, Jews cared about the rich, and Jesus cared about the poor. Jews uh, oppressed women, and Jesus was kind to women. You know, we have this sort of dichotomy, again, a very false dichotomy in our minds about Jesus. Rather rather than seeing Jesus as kind of the anti-Jew or the Christian hero against the Jews, I think it's important to see Jesus as the culmination of Jewish spiritual genius that is laid out in the scripture, starting with Abraham and the leap to monotheism and going on through the other patriarchs and Moses and his Uh, leading the people with no leadership skills at all, you know, and God's help leading the people out of Egyptian bondage, on through the prophets and the judges and and the kings, some of the kings of Israel. All that spiritual genius and the leaps that are made from epic to epic outlined in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament to see Jesus as a part of that Jewish spiritual genius. Because after all, I mean, where did all this stuff come from anyway that he was teaching and that what he was doing? If there was no Christianity, there was no New Testament, where did it come from? It came from the soil in which he was raised. It came from his understanding of God, which was thoroughly Jewish. So I think that's the biggest thing. That's, that's really what I'm standing for with this book, is that people will see 
in Jesus, this continuation and even culmination of Jewish spiritual genius. Now, Rebecca, why don't you tell us a little bit as we're heading towards the end of the interview about your ministry, your workshops, uh, where you hold them, and and, uh, perhaps some website information where uh, people can learn more. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So my ministry is called BridgeWorks, and it's all about building bridges of understanding. And the books that I've written, including The Jew Named Jesus, are all about bringing together disparate ideas, things that seem disparate, and showing the connections. My previous books were about faith in the environment, Green Church, Reduce, Reuse, Recycle, Rejoice, and Seven Simple Steps to Green Your Church. And they hold together science and scripture. So this holds together Judaism and Christianity. And I I just get a great deal of pleasure. I think that's my calling in life, you know, from the way that I was raised and from this both-and perspective that I have as a spiritual hybrid, um, to be able to, to bridge the gaps and help people bridge the gaps. So of anti-Semitism and truly create a new heaven and a new earth in the here and now. Thank you so much. And once again, I just wanted to let listeners know that all of Rebecca's website, contact, and book information will be posted shortly on GodspeedInstitute.com. Rebecca, I just want to thank you so much for being on the program today. It's been a distinct pleasure speaking with you and hearing about your journey and what you bring to this to this world <laughs> in such a good Here. way. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone, simply go to GodspeedInstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at GodspeedInstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.